0: All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to grab it and make your way to First Timothy chapter one. We'll be continuing on uh, in our series through First Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you somewhere. Page nine ninety one in the black hardback uh, Bibles around you. First Timothy chapter one. We'll pick it up in verse twelve in a few minutes. But even as I just prayed, um, we. Our mourning this morning, alongside 17 families in Parkland, Florida, who lost a child or a spouse, dozens others who are injured, and so many, 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 many more that I'm um, just going to have a hard time for a while. I'm just going to be understandably bothered. Um, by what they've seen, what they've went through, what they've witnessed um, in that day. And so please, please continue to pray for them and for this repeating horror in our schools to end. But in a not dissimilar way, but not usually on the forefront of our minds, um, all around the world and throughout the centuries. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who, for their faith, have been brutally murdered and shot down, have been injured, and many more who've been bothered by witnessing, who've watched this, who've seen this, who've gone through it. I I don't know if you've heard about this one terrorist um, in the Middle East, But they say he's literally ravaged churches. It just goes into house after house of believers and drags men and women out of their houses to beat them, jail them, have them murdered. He's constantly breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Always pushing to execute infidels, punishing them in their places of worship, trying to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury, persecuting churches, even into foreign cities. Just an absolute, terrifying, callous, violent, raging enemy of the people of God. And that man is the man that we know today as the Apostle Paul. And all I just said, I just quoted Acts 8.3, Acts 9.1, and Acts through 9 He was a horrible, horrible, angry, violent, bigoted, murderer, bloodthirsty, raging, but eventually this untamable tiger of a man met the lion of Judah and was changed. You can read about it in Acts chapter nine. That's the long story of it. He's on his way to Damascus in Syria to persecute the church, just as it's going, Damascus is going through today, church being persecuted. The apostle Paul, aka Saul of Tarsus, he's on his way there. And on his way, he meets the resurrected and reigning Lord of Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. He knocks him off his horse and basically says, you're going to be mine now. And you're going to be my mouthpiece to take the gospel to the nations. And so Jesus just shows up and just saves this fool's soul. Because that's what Jesus came to do. I mean, even our text Today, First Timothy chapter one, verse fifteen. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance: that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why Christ came to save sinners, and so this whole text this morning that Christie has already read for us is all about that. It's all about salvation, and Paul Is the author of this letter, and he's going to kind of tip his hat to uh, his salvation, to, to the testimony of what Christ has done in his life. And in so doing, he's going to teach us three things about salvation. And the first one, number one in your notes, is this salvation is possible for anyone. All right, number one, salvation is possible for anyone. And so we'll get verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. And so this is Paul just thanking God for being able to do what he is now doing. All right, That he is, has been appointed to be an apostle, Okay, which is a major like, hand-picked uh, leader in the early church. They, they do not exist anymore. There's 13 of them. And so he's thankful for the strength and the faithfulness that God has given him. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. And so let's get real in here and think about those terms for just a minute. When you think of a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, do you view people like that as people for whom Christ died or as people to be defeated? I mean, I I probably see this play out most vividly in politics. I mean, for one, someone needs to tell both CNN... And Fox News that it is possible for two people to love their country, want the best for their country, and completely disagree on the best path to get there. It, that is possible. And, and that disagreement, just to disagree on that, that difference of opinion does not automatically mean that the other person is a horrible, evil person and we should believe the absolute worst about them. It is possible to disagree. Disagree. And so let's not treat people as enemies. But far more importantly than that, if that other person does not know Jesus and we're treating them like an enemy, even on Facebook, how are you being the aroma of Christ to them? How are you showing them neighbor love? How are you displaying the ministry of reconciliation with which he has entrusted us? So we've got to stop this bifurcation in our minds of bad guys and good guys. Because that's absolutely contrary to the Bible. It's unbiblical. What the Bible teaches is that there's bad guys and there's Jesus. And so we're all, everybody's in the bad guy boat in need of Jesus. Not bad guys and good guys. Bad guys and Christ. And here's the good news about it. Christianity is the only religion that is for bad people. Every other religion is a pathway for you to somehow become good enough to try to reach God. But what if you're not good enough? What if you're not? the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be good enough because you can't. But the good news is that Jesus was good enough for you. And that's why salvation really is possible for anyone. Because it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. He lived a life that we've all failed to live a life without sin. He died to death, that we've all been condemned to die death for sin. And He rose again to give us a gift we could never earn, forgiveness of our sin. And so anybody, persecutors, blasphemers, insolent opponents, salvation is possible for anyone because of what Christ did. And then, I mean, verse 16, this is part of the reason that God saved Paul to, to prove this very point. Look at verse 16 with me. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so this is good news. What Paul has just said is that the reason God saved him, stay with me, the reason God saved him, the God, reason God reconciled him back to himself through Christ was so that you and I would be without the excuse of self-pity or the excuse of I've gone too far. God can't possibly forgive me. The mercy He afforded to so many others is not possible for me because I've sinned in ways that surely the Lord won't forgive. And Paul's saying, you can't go there. God saved me. He knocked me off my horse. He saved me. A murderer, a guy who dragged people out of their houses, men and women, children, to beat them, to lock them up, to have them murdered, killed. God saved me. A blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent to prove that there is no sin so big that the cross can't handle it. That's why God saved me, Paul says. And so that should speak to us every time that thought creeps up in our mind and just assaults us. Not me. I've gone too far this time. I've done too much. The Bible over and over and over wages war against that lie. This is just not true. And when you believe that lie, when you buy into that lie, here's what you're really saying. That you actually believe your rebellion is more powerful than God's salvation. That your sin is more powerful than Christ's cross. That you have the ability to out-sin the grace of God. Which is in effect you saying that you are actually more powerful than the Almighty God. His cross might be able to save others, but not me. I, I'm too big for that. I'm too powerful. That, that's what you're saying. But you don't know what I've done. Again, here's the good news. It doesn't matter. This is not about what you've done. We're not saved on the basis of our works. We're saved on the basis of Christ's works. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's this crazy good trading of places. And so salvation is for anyone. And so for those of you in here who do not know Christ, you've never trusted him by faith. This statement of salvation is for anyone is Jesus saying to you, salvation is for you. Today, today is a day of salvation. He's pleading with you to come home to Him. Come home. I love you. I died for you. Come home to me. And so would you? If you don't know Christ, would you repent and believe today? Trust Christ, friend. Trust Him. Give your heart to Him. Take him as your Lord, your King, your Savior. Ask him to forgive you. Trust him. Salvation's for anyone. And then, for those of us who are Christians in here, this statement salvation is for anyone. Believe that. Not just intellectual assent up here, but believe it in here. So that it will move out to here. Head, heart, hands. And it will be displayed in your life. That salvation is for anyone. Because it is. It's for blasphemers, persecutors, insolent opponents. It's for anyone. And the reason it's for anyone, and this is number two in your notes, is because salvation is a gift of mercy and grace salvation is a gift of mercy and grace and if you look at the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 16 they both have the phrase but i received mercy okay but i received mercy well why why we just talked about the why from verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. All right. But verse 13, why does he say that he received mercy? Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not saying that this doesn't mean that Paul's ignorance and unbelief somehow qualified him for salvation or made his actions less sinful. Okay. He's still guilty. God never excuses sin because of mitigating circumstances. He doesn't do that. But He does have pity on ignorance and unbelief. He does have pity. And so in mercy, God saved Paul. And so the ultimate answer to why God had mercy on him is just because God is merciful. It's who He is in His character. He is merciful. That's the only answer we can give because God's mercy does not originate with us. As if we had any merits with which, you know, He might be inclined, let alone obliged, to forgive us, to show, to show mercy. Because look at the direction of the mercy. Look at the direction of the action here in verses 13 and 15. But I received mercy. Okay, Paul didn't go get mercy. He received it. He didn't go earn grace. That's why it's called grace, unmerited favor. You can't earn it. Okay, it was given to him. Okay, he received it. God gave it. He received it. And so the action is all on God. God did all that. And so, like for us, if you're a Christian, we're not in here this morning celebrating the fact that God gave us strength to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We're in here celebrating that He gave us mercy. He's been merciful towards us. Undeservedly gave us grace. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. How many of you have ever seen Niagara Falls? Got a late hand, but appreciate it, Terry. Thank you. Niagara Falls dumps billions and billions of gallons every year of water. Just overflowingly dumping billions and billions, and it's been doing this for God only knows how long. But there's always more to follow. There's always more to come. It's always dumping more and more and more. And this is the way it is with God's grace there's always more to follow. He lavishes overflowing billions of gallons of grace and there's more to come. Always more to follow. It is marvelous, wonderful, matchless grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, it's God's grace. It's grace that's greater than all our sin. And this is what God overflowed to Paul. It's sovereign electing grace. He poured it onto Paul. Paul was not out seeking God, but God had mercy and sought Paul. And this gift of salvation that God wanted to give to Paul, God took Paul's curled up in defiance and rebellious hands and he opened them up. And He placed salvation in His hand and then He gently closed His hands around it. This is the way of salvation. We lay hold of eternal life with the hand of faith. But God opens the hand to receive. And so again, would you receive it today? Has God opened your hand to His grace? Would you receive it today? Would you say yes to Christ? If you haven't, trust Him. I plead with you for your good. To trust Christ. To repent and believe. To take Him as your Savior. He came to save sinners. That's why He came. And when that salvation is received as a gift of mercy and grace, it leads to humility in awe-inspired worship. And that's number three in your notes. Salvation leads to humility and awe-inspired worship. Because just just think, if you had done something, then you could be boastful. You could be proud of what you did. You could walk with a swagger before others. But since you didn't do anything it's all of grace and mercy lavished upon you, then there's no room for boasting. This is very much just Ephesians 2, for it's by grace you've been saved. And this, not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Salvation is a gift of God. We don't do it. He gives. See, by grace through faith. And so the idea of a self-righteous Christian should be an oxymoron. What do we have to be self-righteous about? We didn't do anything. And so as one preacher put it, to the extent which you judge others by your life, you have revealed that you simply don't understand the faith. Where you use your life as the litmus test to judge others, you simply reveal that you know very little about the holiness of God and how unclean you actually are, even to this day, outside of the blood of Jesus. God's redemption is all of grace. And so this should crush all levels of arrogance, all vestiges of self-righteousness and pride and nose in the air better than thou attitudes. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul here. By the time he wrote this, he's planted scores of churches, led thousands to Christ. And yet, verse 16, he says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in Me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. So you've got that foremost statement there in verse 16. Go back to the verse 15 as well. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so Paul does not say, guy who is like, you know, varsity Christian. All right, He does not say, I was the foremost or worst sinner. He says, I am. That's present tense. He still regards himself that way. This is the thinking of a healthy, regenerate heart. That I am the worst of sinners. Not somebody else. I am. Saving Christianity never endows someone with a sense of superiority. If it does, you probably don't have saving Christianity. It humbles us. Paul knew what he had been. He knew who he was and what he continued to be in himself. And this knowledge ever increased with the years as he understood his heart better as the years went by than he did when he first believed. And so I have four girls and a few are guests. And so because I have four daughters, I have probably seen every single Disney princess movie. And they're actually not bad. I'm man enough to admit Frozen is my favorite. (laughs) It is a good movie. Um, But in Beauty and the Beast, you've got um, this scene where Belle is uh, about to take her dad's place to be a prisoner in the Beast's castle. All right? Very like gospel like happening right there. If you never point this out to your kids, point it out. Like she's taking his place. She's substituting him herself. That's what Christ did for us. And so she's she's about to do that. And so she can tell, she's talking to the beast and she can tell that he is disfigured, that he's marred, that he's been cursed, that something he's he's not a typical human, right? And so she can tell this, but she can't see it super well. And so she asks him to come into the light. And as he gets closer and closer to the light, she's able to see how disfigured and marred and cursed he actually is. The closer he gets to the light. And it's the same thing in our lives. The closer we grow to Christ, the more and more we're going to see how actually dirty we are. When we're here, we're a believer. He has saved us. We realize I'm a sinner. I'm in need of Christ. Right? That's the point of salvation here. But as time goes on, we start realizing, you know, man, I'm worse than I thought I was. And then as time goes on, I'm an even worse sinner than I realized I was at first. And on and on and on. It goes really for the rest of our life. Finding out how dirty we actually are, and that means at the same time we're also realizing, like God is holy; He's unbelievably holy. But we're seeing this gap widen, widen. So don't, but don't let this lead you to depression. Let it lead you to praise, because as this happens, the cross is just getting. Bigger in your life, the appreciation of what He has done as we ever increasingly realize our sin and we ever increasingly realize His holiness, we ever increasingly realize what He's done for us. And then I can't help but continue to humble us and fill us with all because we did nothing. Christ did it all. He gave us mercy, He gave us grace for no reason except He did. Because it's who he is, gracious and merciful, overflowing, always more to come. And so by the like by degrees. The awareness of our guilt and God's love, they increase side by side. And so we're drawn to humility because all we have is Christ. All we have is Christ. I am the worst of sinners. But Jesus is the best of saviors. He's the only one who will save bad people. Like you and like me. And friends, when we don't regard ourselves as the worst of sinners... We hold that and we put that on others. They're the worst of sinners. Not me. they, They are. When we live like that, again, we may not actually be a Christian. Here's how Jesus put it. In Luke chapter 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And so Jesus could hardly have been more clear those who are confident in their own righteousness are not justified those who are confident in christ's righteousness for them are and so unless you consider yourself the worst of sinners knowing that your attitudes, like those attitudes that you have in your heart are just as dishonoring to a perfectly holy, infinite God as anything else. Unless you consider yourself the worst of sinners, you're still learning what it means to be a Christian. Because genuine Christians are firmly convinced of the wretchedness of their sin. When John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? The grace is amazing because he's so horrible. The grace is amazing in our life because we are wretches. Not we're good people who just kind of lost our way a little bit and we need, you know, Christ to kind of polish us off and then, whoo, we're golden. And we're wretched. You will never appreciate. What Christ has done for you. If you don't appreciate your depth of your sin and the height of the holiness of God. Christ came to save sinners. It's not from us. He did this. And so it can't be boasted in. It's just God forgiving and changing people in His utterly free, sovereign mercy, so that all His people might, in humility and awe, exclaim, verse 17, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We are not saved from sin and changed into righteousness for pride, but for praise. And when God's work in us is done and we stand perfected before Christ in the last day, we will not exult in our worth. But we will sing with the millions of angels, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. And so we should all say, praise you, O Lord, who came to save sinners, among whom I, and put your name, I, Joseph Stiegel, am the worst. And thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we are sinners. The fact that we would just even think one ounce of us is good apart from You shows the idolatry of our heart. We have nothing outside of You. But in you, Christ, we have everything. We have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sins. We have joy that can't be taken from us based upon the just outcome of circumstances. We have the hope of heaven. We have the help of heaven. Of the Holy Spirit. We have the prayers of your Son. Father, Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us. We have all of your omnipotence and omniscience. Behind us and for us. Because you are. And we have your wisdom that is greater than our wisdom. That causes or allows things into our lives that we might not understand for purposes which we cannot grasp or that may not even be revealed for hundreds of years. You take the evil that is intended by others and you turn it for your good. You redeem events, circumstances, and you redeem people. And Father, for those in here who may not yet know you, I pray in this moment you would redeem them. You would open their hands and place faith in their hands that they might lay hold of it by faith. And that you would stir in us a glorious hallelujah that all we have is Christ and He is all we ever need. In Christ's name, amen.